Mastermind Agent is proud to present the Interview of the Month Club. Top agents, rising agents, team members, and guests from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the club interviews at www.mastermindagent.com. Hi, I'm Mike Cerrone with Mastermind Agent. This month's top agent is Chantel Ray with Chantel Ray Real Estate in Virginia Beach, Virginia. Last year, she closed 810 transactions with a total sales volume of $94 million. Her average sales price was $116,000, of which 40% were buyers and 60% were sellers. She operates a team with 29 members, 3 listing specialists, 9 buyer specialists, 8 REO specialists, 5 administrative staff, one short sale negotiator, and three couriers. Chantel Ray is the team leader of Chantel Ray Real Estate. She's been an agent for eight years. She works the Hampton Roads market. Chantel anticipates market shifts and moves ahead of the pack. She was an early adapter to the REO and short sale markets. Chantel predicts a resurgence in luxury homes and commercial properties. Chantel is either in fifth gear or at a stop. She does not believe in coasting. Chantel knows her strengths and her weaknesses. She excels at team leadership, system building, goal setting, and accountability. She only works on tasks she loves and is good at. For all the other work, she sets up systems and delegates to her team. Chantel stars in her own successful radio ads. She describes how she wrote the script, recorded the ad with the local celebrity, and negotiated with the stations. She created a memorable jingle. If it has to sell, call Chantel. Listen carefully to the sample ad she uses to generate tons of calls and business. First, a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three-part plan used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com. That's freereferralscript.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the call, Chantel. Thanks for having me. Before we talk about what you're doing today, let's go back for a minute and talk about what you were doing before you got into real estate. I was a children's pastor of a church, and before that, I was a teacher at Cox High School here in Virginia Beach for about two years, and I absolutely hated it. I taught math. I have my degree in mathematics. But you gave it a a couple-year shot and decided it wasn't for you. That's right. Did you learn anything in that environment in any of those prior jobs that helped you in your career today? I would say two things. One, the thing that frustrated me the most about teaching was just how apathetic the kids were and how they just didn't care. And so I really tried to come up with contests and games and strategies to get some of those apathetic kids involved just by them winning candy. And I went around to different local, like, you know, Walmart and so forth and had them donate candy and prizes for our kids. And all of those contests, that I did really motivated the kids. I ended up 
I was one of the few teachers who had, for both of the years, I had 100% SOL scores, meaning all of the kids in my classes, and I had lower level classes. I was not dealing with the cream of the crop. Both of those years passed with 100% SOL scores. Not, they didn't get 100%, 100% passed. Great. So 100% of them moved on to the next level. Right. The second thing for the children's ministry, I, when I was a children's pastor, I start, when I got the job, I started out with about 30 volunteers. And by the time I had left there, I had gotten 200 volunteers to help in the children's ministry. So it was a huge amount, and it was just a matter of asking. Like, I literally went up to people and explained to them our vision and why they needed to help in the children's ministry and how that they were really impacting lives, that um, people give their life to Christ when they are at a younger age and showed them that vision and really got them on board to have them help. And we had such an increase in volunteers when they really understood the vision. So I'd say those two things have really shaped me for what I've done in real estate. How did you get into real estate? What made you decide to go down this career path? A lot of people just said that I would be good at it. And so I just said, you know, let me just give it a shot. I was tired of making the money that I was making as a children's pastor and decided that I wanted to really make some serious income. When you got started, did you have a fast start or a slow start? I had a really fast start. I did come into the market. I've been in the business for about seven years. And when I first came into the business, it was when our market was just booming hot. And then no matter who you were, you could sell a house. And so it was with the multiple offers, you know, everyone was putting three, four offers on one house. So I came in at a really good time. And I also made a commitment that every bit of money that I made, so if I made a a $5,000 commission, I put $2,500 back into my business. So I really poured money in while I was making it in the very beginning back into my business, into websites and advertising and so forth. Did that mean that you put a flat amount, $2,500 back in, or did you put half of your commission back in? Half. I put half of every, every bit of income that I made, I put half of it back into the business. So you've been doing this a little over seven years. How many homes did you close last year? About 800. And uh, do you recall what your total sales volume is? It was around 90, 92 million. Our expenses, our people are on anywhere from a 40% to a 70% split. So depending on the way our, our splits work, if they're in an REO position, they make 40%. If they're a buyer's agent, they start out at 50%, and they can go all the way up to 70%, but come January, they start back at 50%. And then our expenses run about $45,000 a month, is what my, between forty-five and $55,000 a month is what I'm spending on admin, advertising, and all of that. Wow, fantastic. Chantel, I'm going to come back to those type of numbers. Let's step back for a minute. Where is Virginia Beach, Virginia? We're on the very east coast, right above North Carolina and right below Maryland. We are right at the beach. I mean, we have a lot of the beach market, but we also handle seven cities around Virginia Beach. Virginia Beach, Chesapeake, Norfolk, Suffolk, Portsmouth. We have seven cities that we handle. 
We do a lot of military. There are a ton of bases here. And so that has kept our economy going because we have constant people leaving, coming on a regular basis. And then we just have a lot of small businesses and we have a few bigger businesses, but not, I think our majority of our people are military. Did you say what the military base is, what the name of the base is? Yes, we have several. We have Oceana Base, we have Damneck Base, we have Norfolk Base. I mean, there's a ton of them here. Describe your current real estate market. I would say that our average sales price is around $200,000. It kind of goes up and goes down, but I would say on average, it's around the $200,000 mark. What do you think is the average days on the market right now? Between 45 and 60 days. In your market, the overall market, are you seeing more retail sales or REO and short sell? I would say right now we're at about 80% of our market is REO and short sales combined. And we only have about 20% that are regular retail market. Do you see the pricing trend in your market? Is it going up? Is it flat or is it falling? I actually just got statistics back from our multiple listing service, and it's actually a drastic change for some of the cities and some of the cities not so much. So 6.8% of a decrease is for Virginia Beach for prices from last year over the year before. But now in Portsmouth, Virginia, which is not as nice of an area, farther away from the beach, a, more of a crime area, I would say, they have about an 18% drop. So it's, that's the range of what we're looking at, between 6% and 18% of a drop. So all the cities that you're working have dropped, and the range is 6 to 18%. Correct. So your market is continuing to fall. That explains the 80% REO in short sale. Correct. Have you developed a niche or a specialization in your market? I have. I am known for being the short sale queen and the REO queen. Both of those is what I'm known for. And I don't really like it sometimes because we also are trying to, we have a luxury division as well. And so I'm still trying to work that luxury division. And so I don't want to be known for the REO but it just is what it is. We just have a lot of short sales and we do a lot of marketing. I do a lot of radio ads. I can send you an ad that you can play for our different radio ads. That's been a big thing for us. And we do really emphasize that we give people a free list of foreclosures. We tell them, have you heard those ads where they say, Call now, and for $19.99, you can get a free list of foreclosures in your area. And we basically tell people, hey, this is a hoax. You don't need to spend money to get these lists. Call us now, and we'll give you a free list of actual homes that you actually can buy. Those lists that other people are trying to sell, they send you homes that sold a year ago. And then we also do some good radio ads about targeting short sales. And what we tell people is, you know, you could go to a doctor, and if you have cancer, you're not going to go to a pediatrician to get rid of your cancer. And you're, if you have brain surgery, you're not going to go to a pediatrician. And they might be a great doctor and a great pediatrician, 
but everybody specializes in different areas. And so we say we specialize in short sales. We know how to do it. We close hundreds of them. We have a system in place to get them done. You're out there advertising on the radio to generate short sales. Yes, and you can get radio ads for $5 a spot. I mean, I do some that are in prime time. Those cost me anywhere from $120 to $150 a spot because I do them right at, I time block them at like right at 5.15 or right at 8.15 in the morning when I know a lot, a lot of people are listening. But then I do a lot of them that I just pay $5 a spot for. In the radio ad, who is talking? Are you hiring professional actors and actresses or are you actually doing the speaking? I'm doing the speaking, but I also am with one of the radio celebrities in our area. So for each station, there's usually one person that everybody knows. And so we've got one station, 2WD. There's a guy on there that everybody knows. And I go on there with him, and it's me and him having a conversation. And he starts out and he says, it's time again for the Hampton Roads real estate update. And I'm here with my good friend, Chantel Lay. Chantel, give us an update on the market today. And then I'll tell him kind of what the update is. How often are you recording these ads? Is it once a week, once a month? Is it changing as you're going along through the market? Yes, I try to do a new one once a month. And then I'll run that for the month and then I'll do something new. Did you arrange to speak with a celebrity? Did you do that through the radio station or did you go out directly to the celebrity and hire them directly? No, I went through the radio station. And I don't actually pay any more. I negotiated that. A lot of times they'll want to charge you more, but I negotiated that I don't even pay an extra fee to have them on there. You're just paying for the runtime, the advertising time itself on the radio. Exactly. Who's writing the script? Are you writing a script for those? I do. I do all of the writing. And I'll be happy to share those with you that the listeners can use and share my ideas. Thank you. That's fantastic. You're writing the script. You're sitting down and speaking with the celebrity. It's getting recorded. How long are the actual spots that are playing? Are they 15 seconds, 30 seconds? They're 60 seconds. Chantel, let's listen to one of the ads that you've put on the radio. It's time once again for the Hampton Roads Real Estate Update with the realtor that sold more houses than anyone else, Chantel Ray. So Chantel, what's new? Right now, 20% of the homes on the market are regular listings, but 80% of them are short sales or bank-owned homes. The reason? Most people right now have no equity in their home, so tons of people are having to do a short sale. Well, can't all agents do short sales? That's like saying a pediatrician should do brain surgery. We have a full-time negotiator in-house that negotiates the short sale for you. We also offer the discreet short sale, which will enhance your privacy so other people don't have to know. We have a ton of agents that know they're not good at short sales. They just refer the business to us. Just save a step and call us first. For more information, call Chantel Ray at 717-1003 or go to ChantelRay.com. That's C-H-A-N-T-E-L-R-A-Y.com or call 717-1003. If it has to Chantel, you mentioned a discrete short sale listing. What did you mean by that? The discrete short sale, what we did, we sat down with our whole entire team and we did something called the X factor. 
And what you do is you sit down and you go, okay, let's talk about some of the things that customers might feel like they are leery of in our particular business. And one of the things that we said was, from the customer perspective, there are people who don't want to do a short sale because they don't want everybody to know, hey, blaring lights, hey, I'm behind on my payment, I can't afford the house, and now you know, we all the neighbors know. And so we came up with something called the discrete short sale, where if somebody is concerned about that, we don't even have to put a for sale sign in the house, and we have a number of things that we do to make it more discreet so that the neighbors don't have to know. Now, you also had a jingle at the end of that ad. How did that get put together? I came up with the slogan, if it has to sell, call Chantel. I think everyone should have a slogan that people can go by. And it, it is crazy how it's really stuck. Like, if somebody, if somebody has a house and it's not selling, they'll say, oh, well, if it has to sell, you better call Chantel. And so it's really just caught momentum, and we've just used it with everything. Even if you call my office right now, we have the jingle. I'll play it for you real quick. But if you dial my office number, I'll show you that how we've kind of branded that. Hi, this is you calling. Don't hang up. We have a live agent that's waiting to answer your call. So just give us a few seconds, and we will be right with you. And remember, see, and then it starts ringing. We've just kind of really branded that. That's kind of our brand. We have that jingle. We have our slogan. We have our logo. And those three things is what we've used so that, I mean, I literally can flash my logo to nine out of ten people in our area in like one second and put it down and they would know our logo because we've done a good job of branding it in this area. How long is that that people have to wait before they get into the actual call? It's six seconds, exactly. Six seconds. Okay, so it's pretty quick, but it gets the message across. Correct. These radio spots, how many stations are you running them on? We're on about six to seven stations right now. And what I try to do, depending on how much money I spent for the month, I'll maybe run four of them one month, and then the next month I'll do it on three. Sometimes I'll run it on all seven at the same time. But the way radio works is you don't have to be on every day for people to pick up the message. So sometimes I might just alternate the stations every other month. How many ads are you putting out in a given month? What's your goal? Are you trying to put out a certain number, a certain frequency? We just have a budget that we, we send, and we spend anywhere between six and $9,000 a month, but a lot of this, the radio ads, we have offset. We do it with a lender. So I can send you another one where, like, for the last 10 seconds, my lender will come on and say something like, hey, if you want to get pre-approved, call me, and he'll give out his number for 10 seconds. And so he's now paid for half of the ad. We're offsetting that cost through our lender. Just for the technical side, the lender pays directly to the radio station. Mm -hmm. 
When you started running these radio ads, did you go out to all seven stations at once or did you just start with one and kind of test it out? I started with the one radio station, which was 94.9, and then I added on a country station was my second one. 94.9, the radio point, has just a mix of, it kind of has like Dave Matthews band music and just a little bit of top 40, you know, kind of songs, just a nice mix. And in this area, it was like the number one or number two radio station. Are these all music or some of them talk radio? You know, I did do talk radio for a little while. And it was just taxing on me time-wise. Because the talk radio, what they wanted me to do, they wanted me to come in. And I actually did like an hour-long show where I really went through in-depth and kind of explained the short sale, explained our process, went over financing, went over pitfalls of different things. I mean, it was a lot of really, really good information. But for me, I needed to do that once a week. And it was an hour-long show, and I just needed to make the decision. I'm really, really big on watching my time. I only have a certain amount of hours in the week, and I have to look at what's going to give me the biggest return from the time. And for me, I said, you know what? If I can go in there once a month, and sometimes I even go once every other month because I'll pre, you know, just do a 60-second spot. It doesn't take me very long. And that was the biggest return for my time. How about the results? Have you been able to track the results from these radio ads? You know, we have. And it's it's been really good. It's one of our, I would say, you know, our number one call that we get hands down is the sign call. So when we have a listing outside, people call us from the sign. That's our best call, hands down. But right coming in at number two would be our radio ads. And our listing appointments are such a breeze because when we go in there, a lot of times we have a really nice presentation that we do on PowerPoint, and they go, mm, I listen to Chantel every day on the radio. I don't, you don't need to do your marketing agreement. I'll just sign. I mean, it's like cakewalk. My agents go in there, and people feel like they know me because they've listened to me talk for the last you know, six months, the last two years, whatever, however long they've been listening. And they listen to me giving advice. They listen to me, you know, sharing different points about real estate. And so when they come in for the listing, I mean, they just go, you know what? I already know I'm going with you guys. I don't need to, I don't, you don't even need to give me a marketing presentation. I've already heard it on the radio, which is phenomenal. It makes my agents are like, this is cakewalk. Have you thought about advertising on television? I have, and I actually did do some TV advertising for a very, very short amount of time, I think about four weeks. And again, it went back to my time and energy because the radio ads are so easy to do. I mean, I literally go in, record a radio ad, and I could look like Death Warm Gopher with my hair in a bun and record it. Nobody knows. When it comes to the TV ads, I've got to get all dolled up, makeup, this and that. And then it takes so long to produce the commercial, and it's very expensive. Every time you want a new commercial made, it's around $1,200 to $1,500. So for me, I had to, I just didn't like having to do all of that mess. And the 
the return on what we got, even though I only gave it a month, which is not a long time, we had absolutely nothing in that one month. And so I thought, this is just not a good use of our money. So we just decided to keep it with the radio ads. You mentioned that your number one source of calls are sign calls. What are you doing with your sign? Is there anything unique on it? Do you have flyers on it? Do you have a special phone number on it? What is making people call? The sign that we have just has our logo and our phone number, and then it also has something called drive-by technology where people can put in the text message number, and that's doing pretty well for us, but the number one thing is still them just picking up the phone and calling. And I don't think we're doing anything extra special. We do have the big post sign, and our sign is very simple and plain. But I just think that in general, when you have the amount of listings, I mean, we we carry over 200 listings for my team at any one given time, up to 200 to 300 listings. So when you have that many houses out in the field, you're going to get a lot of people calling on the sign. Do you have your picture on the sign? I used to, and now I don't anymore. I've really tried to take my team and brand it more into a company. And so I've taken my picture off of almost everything now. I really, I used to have my picture everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. Now I just have our logo everywhere. Because when people call, I don't want them to think that they, what was happening when I had my picture on everything, they wanted to work with only me. And I'm in a place right now, and I've been for several years, where I don't take any appointments myself. I don't take listing calls. I don't talk with clients. I basically just run the office. On these signs, do you have flyers? Do you put flyers on signs anymore? We do, and we do do really upscale flyers. For anything that's over like 300000 we actually get them professionally made. They're like glossy material, like cardstock, really, really high-end. And then for the other houses, we still make them look really, really nice and really professional. Are you doing any advertising online? Zillow, Trulia, AdWords, those kind of things. Are you doing any advertising online? Yes, we actually do all three. We do Zillow, we do Trulia, and we do AdWords. And I will tell you, hands down, the number one is Zillow. And there's one guy over at Zillow, and I think his name is Cody, and I'll get you his his number, but he's really phenomenal. You want to talk to this one guy over there, tell him that I sent you, and he's just a mover and a shaker, but he really has gotten us on a really good thing over there. And we're getting a ton of really quality leads. So call Cody at Zillow. Short sales have been a really big part of your business. In fact, I noticed that last year is about 30% of your business or about 240 closings, about 20 a month. That's pretty impressive. A lot of people are struggling with short sales and and have a, a distaste for them. So maybe we should get into how you're making that work. Let's first of all talk about how you're generating the short sale business. You've mentioned the radio ads. What else are you doing to bring in short sale business? The number one thing we are doing is the radio ads. After that, one of the things we do is an email blast that's done by a program called Constant Contact, and we do a really nice email template that goes through why they shouldn't just let their home go into foreclosure 
why they shouldn't do a deed in lieu, and what exactly is a short sale, kind of some facts and questions about what is a short sale, why should they do it. We have an email database of about 5,000 people, between 5,000 and 8,000 people at any one given time, so we email that out. The other thing we do is we actually have gotten some data of people that are behind on their mortgage, and we do some mailers out directly to those people who are behind on their mortgage. And has that been fruitful? It hasn't been as fruitful as I thought it would be. We actually do more with the radio ads. I think by the time we get the information of the fact that these people are behind, I think they just kind of give up a little bit. How did you develop this list of five to 8,000 emails? Over the years, everybody that was a past client, we put those people in. We also did housewarming parties at one time where anytime someone bought a house from us, we offered them a free housewarming party. And so we paid for the food, we paid for the drinks, and so people would invite all of their friends, and we would do drawings and have their them fill out like their name and their email and put them in there. I created this group called Virginia Beach Speed Networking, and it was kind of like speed dating, but it was in, this is where I got the most from. I mean, we had a lot of people come in and out through this speed networking, and it was targeted to businesses that wanted to get their name out there, wanted to meet other business salespeople, other business owners. And so every time they came, they had to fill out a sheet, and so we got their email address. I would say that would be the number one way. This is a general email database. It's not just specifically people who are in the short sale situation. Correct. We send it out to everybody. Because what we do is we say to them, do you know somebody who is going through? We're not basically saying, is it you? We're saying, do you know someone that's behind on the short sale? You can help them by referring them to us. You're getting referral business in from sending out these emails on top of your radio ads. Are there any other ways that you're generating short sale business? We do a little bit of stuff on Facebook where we say something like, you know, are you behind on your home? Get more information. We had for a while, and we still do, we have a guy right now, he had a $450,000 home, and I can send you the letter. The bank ended up giving him $33,000 to do the short sale as a relocation assistance as long as he would not foreclose on the house. So we kind of took copies of the letter and you know, took out the people's names so people could see, hey, we have people making anywhere from 3000 to $33,000 just to not foreclose on their home. And so we used that as one of our marketing strategies at one time to kind of get out there as well, and we did a mailer with that. Wow. So banks are now paying sellers to short sell. Correct. And they're calling it a relocation assistance? Correct. I've noticed that you seem to be moving in your career ahead of the trend. You've moved into REO, which we'll talk about in a little bit. You've moved into short sale, which is picking up right now. How are you staying ahead of these trends and getting in front of the market? I definitely think that is a huge thing that I've done. When I saw what was happening with everything with the housing 
market and I knew that the prices were skyrocketing. I knew that in a few years we were going to have this problem. And so right at that time, before anyone even cared about bank-owned homes, that's when I started applying to all these banks. So I really did do that ahead of the curve. And I think that's just one of those things that you just have to look ahead. Like even now, I'm really trying to build our commercial division and build our luxury division because I do feel like commercial properties are really on the move right now. We're starting to get a lot more commercial properties in, so I'm putting some effort and some money into that. And I feel like the luxury market's going to be turning around in a few years and want to get ahead of the curve on that. So that's where you see the next change or the next trend or shift in your market is towards commercial and luxury. I do think that we're going to have the short sales for the next at least four or five years. I've talked to one of the upper upper management people at one of the banks, and he told me that they now have seven strategies of what they're supposed to do before they foreclose on a home. And we're seeing people where they've lived in a home for 18 to 20 months before they've actually foreclosed on them. So they're just trying to do, they're getting a lot of pressure from the government. They're getting a lot of pressure from a lot of different areas that they don't want them to foreclose. They want people to do a short sale. So that's why I'm saying now they're offering incentives and doing different tricks to get people to definitely do a short sale instead of foreclosing. And so the number of our bank-owned homes that we're having are actually decreasing. Talk about this relocation assistance for a second. Are banks offering that right off the bat, or are you negotiating that into the agreement? That $30,000 one, that is something that the bank did right off the bat. And so a lot of them are they are doing right off the bat. Every once in a while, we'll negotiate it, but we really haven't had to. How long have you noticed that? Has that just been happening in the last six months or last year, or has it been happening all along? It's been happening all along, but it's been with certain banks, and now more banks are catching on. Let's walk through the process of the short sale and pick out little bits and pieces. Once you find the folks that are in the need of a short sale and you go out and speak with them and counsel them and they decide they want to do this, how do you price the home? Are you trying to price it right at the market? Are you pricing it above or below the market? What's your pricing strategy? We're trying to price right below the market. We found that that's the best strategy we have. We absolutely really train our agents on what overpricing does, and we have a full slideshow that really goes over and gives statistics and examples of when a seller does overprice, they actually end up making less money at the end of the day. And so we try to be either right at the market or a touch below it for pricing. So you don't try to drop the price significantly, say 10 or 20% below market to attract a buyer? When we price it under the market just a little bit, we're getting multiple offers. Chantel, when you say just a little bit, is it just a couple thousand below? Is it a 5 or 10% below? What do you mean by just a little below? I would say even 5% under, we're still getting 5 to 10% under, we're getting multiple offers. You're not having any problems later with the bank saying you were under market? No, because we're still, once we get the bidding war going, we're getting it right at where market is. Are you doing anything unique to market the short sell home? The main thing that we are doing for those is 
we do do some constant contact mailers. It depends if they are in the discrete short sale program or if they're in the regular short sale program. There's just two different kinds of people out there. Some people are like, I don't care if people know I'm doing through short sale. It's not a big deal. It is what it is. And then, like I said, there's others that just don't want anyone to know. So we just have two different programs. The discrete program, obviously, we just do the minimal amount of marketing as far as the signs and brochures and all of that. But we do do a lot of online advertising for those. But we do the exact same advertising that we do for short sales as we do for our regular listings. So we do the drive-by technology. We put them on 42 different websites. We do a professional virtual tour for each house. We do the professional flyer. In the MLS, when you have these short sales, are you making any unique disclosures to the co-op agents? Uh, Do you have to give them any special forms, give them any kind of special direction, or make any kind of disclosure about commission? Yes, that is a big deal going on right now. What we do is we put in a certain amount, so we'll put X amount, but we put an asterisk, and then we put in the notes. We say something along the lines of, we will pay you 50% of the total commission that the bank gives us. That way we aren't offering them something that we can't hold up. Do you give the buyer agent, the co-op agent, any kind of other special directions or counseling to let them know how this short sale is going to proceed? We do have a short sale negotiator in-house. So what I did a few years ago is I hired a guy. He's been with us for a few years, and he literally sits in my office. He handles only our deals, and all he does is call the banks and fax them and email them every single day on every one of our files. We all know that it really is that slogan that says, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. You know, that is what happens when you're constantly pounding them saying, hey, look at my file, look at my file. These negotiators have hundreds of files on their desk. So the person that's just calling them every day, they're like, let me get this guy out of my hair. And so that's all he does. He sits in my office full time and calls every one of our short sales. And because of that, we've built a reputation among the other agents in town that they know, hey, the Chantelbury real estate team, they are going to get the deal closed. And there's some that we can get closed in four weeks. I mean, we do have our certain ones that we can't get closed for about six months. And it's just a matter of pounding the pavement. But for the most part, on average, I'd say we are able to close these short sales in about two months. That's our average, two to three months at the most. This short sale negotiator How often are they trying to make contact on each transaction? He's calling the banks about every other day on every single file. So he's making phone calls as well as emails? Correct. What is he saying during these phone calls? I talked to you two days ago and I just want a status update? Pretty much. He just calls them and says, hey, I know that you're really busy, but I need to see where we're at. Here's the loan number. Where are we going on this? What else do you need? And then sometimes he'll leave a message. Sometimes he'll send an email. But he literally just hounds them. And then he won't call if we know that they're waiting on something. So if the the negotiator says, hey, I'm waiting on the appraisal back, touch base with me in a week, then he'll wait and touch base with them in a week. But if he's not getting an answer back, he will call every other day until he gets a response. 
when you're trying to contact the bank, at least in the past, they haven't been easily accessible. And I was wondering how you get in touch with them. It sounds like when you're having one of those tough ones, you just keep calling and keep emailing. Yeah, I am very persistent. And we have a set of core values. And it's funny because one of our core values says we follow up with someone until they buy or they die. And it's really true. It just shows just how persistent we are. We just really, you know, until the deal's dead, we just keep on trying and we just don't give up. Are there any other tricks or secrets for how people can get these transactions closed with the banks? What we do is, again, we price the house a little bit under market as well so that we can get an offer very quickly. And then we get the offer, and then what they'll do is they'll hire someone to go out and do a BPO, and then we at least know what the bank is willing to take. And so let's say let's say market value is 200 Maybe we will price it at 180 to try to get an offer quickly, and then the bank comes back and says, no, I'll take 190 And then we either negotiate with the current guy and say, look, 190 is still a good deal. Let's put this together, or we'll put it back on the market, and then at least we know where the bank stands that they want the offer of 190 It's a way to fill out the bank quickly. Correct. When you send in your offers to the bank, your package to the bank, are you presenting them with condition pictures or contractor bids? So what are you sending in the package that goes to the bank? Yes, we do. We have a full packet and I can send you the full list of everything that we do. We have everything up front. We know what we've needed in the past. So when we first take a listing, we actually don't list a home for a short sale until they get us everything that they need. So we say, hey, we've got to see your bank accounts. We've got to see your W-2s. We've got to see all of this stuff. We need copies of all of this before we list your home because that shows us how motivated someone is. That's another thing that we do is we're actually picky about who we take. We don't take every short sale that comes across our door. We say to people, look, we have about a 96% ratio of short sales that we get put through, but it's because... We don't just take some guy that goes, eh, if it goes to foreclosure, I really don't care. I don't feel like getting all this paperwork. We take listings for people who say, look, that's the worst thing that could happen. I don't want to do a foreclosure. I want to do a short sale. I'll get you whatever you need. Because it's a tedious process for the seller as well. And if there's nothing in it for them and they're not motivated, it's like forget it. Now, a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV. Real estate agent lead generation television, where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. Open Google and search Real G TV. That's R E A L G dot TV. Now, back to the show. Are you working with sellers who have two mortgages? Yes, we are. We don't discriminate when it comes to that. We've gotten short sales approved when someone has a first, a second, and a third. So it's more work for our poor short sale negotiator, but we do do both the first and the second or even a third. That's not an issue. The short sale negotiator, are they negotiating all the short sales? Every short sale that we bring in, he negotiates. I'm going to go in the team later, but just real quickly, since we're talking about it, 
does he receive additional compensation for each of those closings? What we do is he negotiates that with the bank. So what we do is if he can, he'll put an amount, let's say $1,500 or something like that for his fee, and he'll put it on the HUD and disclose it to the bank. And then if the bank doesn't pay it, then we give him a flat fee, but we don't give him near that much. He's negotiating a fee directly from the bank. Correct. If it doesn't happen, then you're taking care of him. Right. On these short sales, do you use any special type of software to track it? Is it unique enough that you need special software or do you just track it like a normal transaction? We just use it like a normal transaction. When you're trying to get your compensation from the bank, are you finding that the banks are trying to beat you up on your commission or are they typically leaving things alone? I would say 80% of the time we're getting our full commission. 20% of the time they are trying to negotiate with us. Are you noticing a trend for when that's happening? Is it a certain bank or is it when you're in one of these situations where you have two mortgages? I would say it is each bank. There are certain banks we know we're going to get the full commission and there are certain ones we know they're always going to beat us up for more. Chantel, let's move into the other area of your business, and that's REO sales. REO sales last year represented about 40% of your business, about 300 plus closings. So that's 25 to 30 a month. How many banks and asset managers are you working with to generate that many transactions? I have 45 different banks that I have accounts with. So it's a huge number. And right now, we're getting about seven new properties a week. We're getting seven new listings from our banks a week. But at one point, we were getting about 27, 27 to 30. So it's actually a huge loss from where we were last year. But we still are getting a good number. I'd say between, I'd say between five and seven new properties every week. What do you attribute that drop to? I attribute it to what we talked about earlier about that they have about seven layers now. They're trying seven different strategies of what they can do if they're getting people to do a short sale or getting them to do a deed in lieu or doing a loan mod or whatever they're trying to do to try to get them to not do a foreclosure. And so in the last year while you saw the REO business fall, did you see your short sale business rise? Yes, our short sale has gone up and our REO business has gone down. How long have you been doing the REO business? Have you been doing it your entire seven-year career? No, I would say for the last four years. For the last four years, I've been doing it. And I had a guy that I paid money to coach me how to start and to get in. And um, then I started doing it for other people. I've helped other people get 40 other banks as well, and I've coached them on exactly what they need to do. And I don't do a lot of REO coaching anymore because it's so hard to get into these banks now. The only people I'll work with right now are people who are really super, super motivated and are really have a little bit of experience, and they're just looking to take it to the next level. We interviewed Pat Hyben recently, and Pat said that you mentored him into this REO business and he had great success in 18 months he went from 
zero banks and zero assignments to 32 banks and over 300 assignments. In general, what did you tell Pat to do? Well, I gave him information on where to go and what websites to go to and exactly the steps on, you know, which banks he needed to do what for. It would just be way too long for me to explain the whole process, but it's very in-depth. For each bank, there's totally different process that you need to do. You said you still do some of that coaching. How long is your coaching program? How long does it take to get somebody up and running? Within about three months, I can get them a few banks to start with. It just depends on if they've already worked with a few banks. And I think when I met Pat, he did already have one or two accounts, like small accounts. And so he had a little bit of a knowledge. And then I mentored him and, you know, then he got up to over 30. Chantel, if somebody was interested in learning more about your REO coaching program, how would they contact you? They can just send me an email at, to Chantel at ChantelRay.com. That's C-H-A-N-T-E-L at ChantelRay.com. It's about a three-month program. It's a one-on-one program where you're talking to them directly? Correct. Yep, I talk to them directly on the phone one-on-one. How much does something like that cost? It's $3,000 for an upfront fee, and then it's 25% for a certain amount of bank-owned homes. Like when they get a new account, a few of those homes for each bank, they have to give 25%, and then once that's done, they don't have to pay the 25% referral fee anymore. Let's talk about how you got into it. It sounds like you did something similar. You went out to a coach and they helped get you up and running. In the program where you got up and running, were you calling the banks? Were you emailing the banks? How were you touching base with these banks? Yes, I was doing all of them. It's basically you're prospecting to the banks, but you have to have the information. You it's impossible to get in to do it without someone coaching you through it. You have to have someone say, okay, here's who you need to call. Here's the phone number. Here's the website. Here's how you need to register. Here's what you need to do to get your resume up to snuff. Here's all of the different items that you need so that the asset manager goes, hey, this clown really knows what he's talking about. It really is important for you to get somebody if it's an area that you want to get into. And But like I said, Getting into REO right now, it's a little bit late in the game because a lot of the banks are saying, hey, we've got plenty of agents. We're not hiring new agents to add to our portfolio. Now, there are some that are adding to their portfolio, but not all of them are. You know, Pat, when I coached Pat, he came in at a really good time because the banks needed people. They were getting tons and tons of volume and they didn't have enough people. Now, We're in the reverse. They've got tons and tons of agents. They don't even have enough volume to support the agents they have. The way that you can get in now, though, is when they're not happy with who they currently have. Some of the REO agents just aren't good, and they're just not doing a good job, and so that's how you can get in. It's not that they need someone else. They have the manpower, but they just don't like the manpower that they have. So you're coming in going, hey, I'm going to go over and above. I'm going to be your it person. I'm going to jump when you say jump. And that's what they want to hear. I've heard that they won't even talk to you now unless you have a little experience under your belt. How does someone get experience who has none? What you really need to do is start doing BPOs. There's 
a ton of companies that are looking for people to just do BPOs. They say, hey, we have enough listing agents, but if you just want to do BPOs and at least get your experience that way so that you can learn how to do BPOs, learn what it takes to do a good BPO, get the numbers right, fill out the forms completely, and so forth. I've also heard some people will do a co-op listing. There'll be a co-op lister with somebody else on a REO property. Have you heard of that? Yeah, and that's a great thing. Here's a perfect example. Like I'm looking for someone to co-op with me in North Carolina because I have some zip codes in North Carolina and they're coming to me and saying, hey, would you do, would you do Williamsburg or will you do North Carolina? And for me, it's about an hour and 45-minute drive. And for us, it's like, hey, we don't feel like doing that. So we can kind of get someone under our belt and we, we definitely do that at times as well. So you've already done some of that. Has that worked out okay for you? Yeah, it has. We haven't done a ton of it. We do need to find some agents to do a little bit more with. You mentioned earlier that if somebody wants to start this process, they have to be contacting the proper people. Does that mean that you have a list or a database that you work with of asset managers and or contacts? Yes, I do. I've heard in the REO business, you have to have some assets your own personal assets to get into this because each of these listings, each of these assignments is going to cost some money. Have you found that to be true? Yes. Right now we have about about $150,000 out. We, we range anywhere from $100,000 to $150,000 out at any one given time. And the reason is because the banks are saying, hey, if these people need money for cash for keys, that's $3,000. If you need to do repairs on the property, that's another $10,000. It is very expensive, but there are some tricks that you can do to kind of reduce that. And there also, a lot of the banks now are implementing things where they're directly paying the cash for keys, so you don't have to pay for it. They are starting to implement these programs to save the agents some money. Which banks are you working with? You said you're working with 45 different banks. Are those all private banks or are you also working with some of the government entities such as HUD, Fannie Mae, and Freddie Mac? We do work with HUD. We work with Fannie Direct. We work with Freddie Direct. We work with Wells Fargo Direct, Bank of America Direct. And then we have just smaller banks, Chase, PNC, Citibank. We just have a lot of outsourcers that we work for, that they outsource, you know, Bank of America properties. So it's a combination, but it is a total of 43. And I've heard that the government entities, if you get in with them, there are a lot of volume. If you are looking at your REO business right now, what percentage of the REO business do you think is coming from the government side versus the private side? I would say a huge majority is coming from the government side. I couldn't give you a percentage, but I would say probably, I would say probably 65% is government side and 35% is private. Which one of the three are you getting the most assignments from right now? HUD, Fannie Mae, or Freddie Mac? I would say probably Fannie Mae and HUD. Of the three, which did you join first? Which did you start working with first? Probably Freddie Mac was our first one that we joined. In your market, when you're taking these properties in, are you typically selling the REO properties as they are, as you're receiving them? Are you typically having to do repairs? 
50-50. 50% of them were, were listing just as is and 50% were actually repairing. When you're working with HUD, they don't do any repairs, so you know that you're never going to repair anything. All of their homes are sold as is. But Fannie Mae is really trying to get owner occupants into their properties, and so is Freddie Mac. So the two of them would prefer to fix up the house and get it up to snuff so that they could sell to an owner occupant. Who's going out to check out the properties and make recommendations on repairs? Is that you or the bank? The agent is doing that, the agent that I've assigned to that property. How did you get the knowledge base to know what to estimate these repairs at? Are you bringing out vendors or are you doing the estimates yourself? We do have contractors that work right alongside with us and they tell us those numbers and they give us the bids for those. And then you mentioned that oftentimes you're having to front the money for those repairs. Yes, we are. I'd say 50% of the time we're having to front the money. Actually, all the time we're having to front the money for that. Some of the banks, if it's $3,000 or higher, let's say we do a $10,000 repair job, certain banks say, if it's $3,000 or less, you pay them directly. If it's $3,000 or more, we'll send them a check directly. But then there's certain banks that say, nope, if it's $10,000 and that's what you decide to repair, you still have to front that money. When you have to put up the money and you have to get these bids, that's taking a lot more of your time and effort rather than just selling a property as is. Are the banks paying you more for that time? No, (laughs) we don't, unfortunately. You're just hoping that it balances out with the ones that are taking all this time and effort on the repairs versus the ones that don't. The agents on my team that do REO, they get paid at a 40% split. And the reason is because it's so taxing on us, everything that we have to do. Like we send out a courier once a week to check on these properties to make sure there's not been any damage to it. There's so much more accounting checks that we have to write to fart money. So there's just a lot more stuff that we have to do. So the split that we give them is a lot less. Let's talk about your team who's on the team and what their tasks are. So we're looking for positions and tasks or areas of responsibility. Could you go down the list real quick and not tell us the people, but just tell us the position title, how many people you have in that position, what they do in that position, and then move on down to the next one. Sure. We have about 12 people who are buyer's agents. And we call them buyer's agents, but they actually do listings as well. And when we first started, we did give them listings, and we had someone that just did listings. But we just have basically regular agents, but we call them buyer's agents. And they take listings, and they work with buyers, but they only take the listings that are short sales or regular sales. Then we have eight agents that are REO agents, and all they do is handle our bank-owned properties. So when we get a new listing for bank-owned, those eight agents handle that. Then we have about eight people who are on our admin staff, and they do everything from transaction coordination to listing coordination to billing, just everything we could possibly need for admin. And then we have two people who are couriers. So... They just go to the properties, check the properties, make sure that they're still standing, no one's stolen the you know, heat pump or anything like that. 
are all these people licensed? The admin are not licensed, but the agents are. When you're bringing in agents for one of these positions, are you looking for people who are experienced or people who are new? We really like people who are experienced because just being on our team, if we took a person that was just an agent and then been an agent for three years, it would take us a good month to get them on board trained with what they need to do differently for our team. So you understand what I mean? Like just the processes and the systems and everything that we do, it's just, it's a lot for them to ingest. So when we have to teach someone all of our processes and all of our systems on top of teaching them how to be a real estate agent, it's just a nightmare. But we do take on a few new people every once in a while if they are super, super hungry and super motivated. We have a new, brand new girl that just started two months ago. In the month of January, I think she's got six deals on the books. And so she's just a go-getter. We've known that about her. I mean, she's just like out of control, you know. She's just one of those people. She'll stay up till midnight, you know, checking her emails and doing everything she needs to do. I mean, she's just a straight go-getter. And in two months, we've got her selling six homes, which is phenomenal. How are you compensating them? Are they all on commission? Are they receiving uh, salaries, hourly rates? How are you paying these people? The buyer's agent starts at a 50% split. They can go all the way up to 70%, except for if it's a listing. A listing, we do so much to market our listings, we never give them anything higher than 50%. And the reason is because our admin does so much of the work. I mean, they literally go to the house, do the listing paperwork, and our admin takes care of everything else. The admin does the virtual tour, the admin does the flyers, the admin puts it on the 40 different websites. On the buyer side, they can go all the way up to 70%, but they don't reach 70% until they have themselves earned in total commission over 100000 So usually our people aren't getting to 70% until about September. And the REO agents, they're at a 40% split, but they are making a very, very good salary on that 40%. The admin, all of our admin are on an hourly basis. And we pay anywhere from 12 to $15 an hour for our admin. And the couriers, they're hourly also? Yes, they are. We have one Hummer that's wrapped with our logo and everything on it. One of the couriers drives that. The other one drives their car, and we give them, I think, $0.30 cents per mile plus $11 an hour. Just to break it out real quick, so your buyer agents, when they're working with a buyer, they start at 50%. Once they earn $100,000 in income to themselves each year, they jump straight up to 70%. So it's just a two-level. Well, no, 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 no. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, no, no. It starts at 50%, then goes to 55 then goes to 60 then 65 then 70 The highest they can go is to 70 Let's talk about when they take a listing. Uh, you said they can earn up to 50%. Does it start below that or does it start at 50%? Yeah, there's certain listings they only make 40% on, and that's if we just hand them a listing that's not a short sale. Let's say one of my friends wants to sell their house, and I just hand it to them. Literally, I've set the appointment. They just have to go there and take the listing paperwork and come back and hand it to the admin and then negotiate the deal at the end of the day. 
those will be 40%. But for the most part, they're 50%. For these transactions, you're generating the lead, you're bringing the business in. Are the buyer agents doing the follow-up? Are they calling the leads and doing the follow-up? Yes, they're doing all of the follow-up. So they're doing the follow-up. They're going to the appointment. They're signing up either a seller or a buyer. On the buy side, they're doing the showing. On the list side, that's going back into negotiation. Are the agents coming back in during the inspection negotiation, or does your admin handle that? No. They handle everything as far as the agent goes. The only thing that the admin does for them is the marketing. They do the flyers, putting it on the websites, doing the virtual tour. They do call the sellers once a week and just find out how they're doing, like if they need more flyers or is everything going okay or are they happy with the way the pictures look and, you know, that kind of customer service type stuff. But as far as anything that the agents need to do, the agents are doing that. Who's tracking the contract once it goes under contract? Is that the agents or the admin? The admin that does the transaction coordination is licensed. She does do transaction coordination for them. She sets up the walkthrough and sets up the home inspection. That is done by our admin. Who goes to the closing? The agent. You've got all these people running around. You must have systems in place to make sure everything goes smoothly. Do you have systems in place? We have systems for our systems. I mean, we are out of control with our systems, but I think that's one of the biggest reasons why we've been successful. We have checklists for each of the admins. So when when a property comes in, one of the things I always say, and I say this on our radio ads as well, I say that we are like Outback Steakhouse. Every time you go to Outback to get a steak, you get it cooked and it tastes exactly the same way. If you go to the Chinese restaurant down the street, a lot of times that's just a regular Chinese restaurant, it's not going to always taste the same. One day it tastes this way, one day it tastes that way. It depends on who the cook is. But if you go to P.F. Chang's, it's always going to taste the same. And the reason is because they have systems in place to ensure that happens. We do the same thing with me. I have a lot of times people call me and say, oh, well, I only want to work with you, Chantel. And I tell them, listen, I promise you it's going to be just like Outback. The steak is going to taste exactly the same. We have systems in place to make sure I know what it takes to sell a house, and I've implemented that into a checklist and into a system. And all of my agents are trained on what that is. So we are fanatical about systems, and we're fanatical about making sure people follow them. And the thing about it is is people do what is rewarded. What is rewarded is repeated. And that is the biggest thing that I think has really stuck out with me in my business is I constantly remind myself of that is what is rewarded is repeated. And so we reward people based on them following the systems. And if they don't follow the systems, there's consequences. So like, for example, we have a lead system. When we give them a lead, there's specific steps that they need to do. If they don't do that, those, that lead is taken away. With our admin, we do the same thing with every person. We reward them for what they're doing great, but if they don't do it, there is a consequence for it. These checklists, the systems that are being put in the checklist, is it a piece of paper, is it manual, or is it electronic on a computer? Both. We have it on the computer and we have it printed. What kind of computer software are you using to track this? We've done all these different ones as far as 
you know, top producer and all of these other ones. And to be honest, the one that we like the best is we just have things in Word and in Excel. And then when we have to hire a new admin, everything is done through Word, Outlook, and Excel. And that way, we don't have to train somebody on a new system. When we hire a new admin, almost all of them know how to use Microsoft Word, Microsoft Outlook, and Microsoft Excel. And so it just we've created systems around those three programs, which we actually like a lot better. We've done top producer in the past, and training process was so long, and then we had to teach this one and how to do this. It just, we didn't like it. So you simplified it. Yes. And the reason that got me to do that is I had a friend of mine, we had a period of time where we had like an admin quit, and then they turned around and another admin quit, and we just poured so much energy into them. And, you know, this one had to move. Their husband got transferred and just all of this other mess. But, you know, the bottom line is the guy told me he worked for a fast food chain. Not a fast food, but it was just a higher-end chain of restaurants. And he said, look, we have an enormous amount of turnover. He said, but we make our processes so simple and so easy that if someone leaves, it's not a big deal. We hire somebody else. We teach them the processes. Everything's written down. Everyone knows how to do it, and we implement it. And so that's what I did. I just started getting to the point. I go, you know what? If you leave today, it's not a big deal. I can get somebody else to come in. I've got everything written down. Everything's in a manual format. Everything, it's, it's kind of like Starbucks. I got on the Starbucks kick for a while. And um, I would go there like every day. I would get this skinny vanilla latte. And every time I went, I swear, I had a new person there. And I'd say, oh, well, where's Jenny? And they'd say, oh, she quit. And I got to know Karen. And I was like, oh, where'd Karen go? And she's like, oh, she quit. Starbucks doesn't miss a beat. Somebody quits, they just put a new person in. They follow the system. The coffee still tastes the same. And so that's what I've done. And I've, I can't emphasize that enough as I go, I've created the system. It doesn't matter who I put in to fill the system. It doesn't matter who Starbucks gets as long as it's a quality person and somebody who's good, they're going to still get the end result. You mentioned a manual. Do you have a manual then in the office for each of these positions? Yes, we have a manual that sits at each person's desk. It's kind of like a flip chart manual. We bought these things and it can sit at the front of the manual where everything is really spelled out. I mean, even from the simple things of like when you look at the desk, it says exactly how to answer the phone. Sitting right in front of you, it shows. It's a great day at the Chantel Ray team where if it has to sell, call Chantel. This is Susie speaking. How can I help you? So that's how everybody answers the phone and it's sitting there right in front of the desk. So the script is just taped right onto the desk. Correct. So how long does it take you to get somebody up and running now? For an admin, still takes us a good about maybe four days to get them you know to where we really feel comfortable they can be up and running in one day but to get them to the point where we feel comfortable it's probably about four or five but at least they're functioning the minute that they come in because everything's written down do you do cross training we do we have every person cross trained So if someone is sick or out or gets transferred, you can just have somebody shift into that position to cover until you find a new person. Exactly. What is your job on the team? (laughs) 
Everyone says that all the time. My job is to make sure that the goals of our people are what they have goals for themselves that I help them achieve. That's my biggest job. I am really big on helping people reach their goals. And we have people fill out goals in five different areas of their life, which include their personal life, their family life, their career life, their fitness and health, and their financial wealth building, and for their significant other, and for friends and relationships. So, and spiritual as well. So I guess it's more than that. I guess it's like six or seven different areas. And they have to write down clear and specific goals, and I meet with them on a regular basis and really work through what their goals and how I can help them achieve it. That's my number one thing. And if I can help my people to achieve their goals, they're going to be around a lot longer. And sometimes they won't. I literally had an admin one time, and she wrote on there that her goal was to open up her own restaurant. And I looked at her and I said, if that really is your goal, then what are you working here for? You shouldn't be working here. If you want to own your own restaurant, you need to go work at a restaurant. You need to be the front-end manager. Then you need to be the dining room manager. Then you need to be the, in the kitchen manager. Then you need to be the, the regular manager and move yourself up until you get to that point. But if that's your goal, you shouldn't be working here. And she ended up leaving. But she wasn't the right person if that's what her end goal was. So the bottom line is we sit down with people and really – get them to write down very, very specific of exactly where they want to be. It sounds to me like your jobs are, number one, these goals. Number two, to create systems that people can follow to make sure that the business operates smoothly. Correct. Do you have an office manager, somebody who runs the office, or is that your position? No, we do. We actually have a director of operations that oversees the admin, creates systems, and that she does that. I even actually have already hired someone who I call our CEO of our company because she actually takes care of day-to-day problems and when people have complaint calls and training new agents. She does a lot of that. So I'm really at the point now where I'm trying to fire myself and get it to where I've got everyone else running the company, and I'm just kind of the president. But as far as specific day-to-day jobs, I've got those doled out for other people to handle. How many hours a week are you working in the business? I would say right now I'm working about 35 hours a week, and I'm working 35 hours a week to just fine-tune everything, meet with our director of operations, meet with our CEO, meet with people on their goals. And I'm still working about 35 hours a week, but I would like to at some point get to the place where I'm working about 10. And and I could choose to work. I really could. The business would be fine if I only worked five hours a week. But I'm very self-motivated. And until I create another business or move on to something else, I still enjoy what I do. I love what I do every day. And that's another thing is that I I only do the jobs that I absolutely love. Everything that I don't love, I delegate out. And we really try to teach that to the people that we have is that we try to figure out what they love and what they're really good at. And everything that they're not good at, we try to delegate to somebody else. There's always someone who's going to love something that you hate. It's finding a good fit. 
Yeah. Like for me, I hate the accounting portion of everything. Like I just don't like the accounting portion, even though I have my degree in mathematics, I hate anything that has to do with accounting, but we have a girl that loves it. You know, she loves that, that whole end of it. So that's the key. You've got a large team. You have a lot of people running around agents who are looking at this and trying to figure it out, I assume several of them are going to have a question on their mind. They're going to say, is Chantel's operation profitable? Are you profitable? Yes. Could you tell us a percentage of dollars that end up dropping to the bottom line because of all these expenses? How much money, not, not dollars, but what kind of percentage of net comes down to the bottom line in a big operation like yours? I would say probably 20%. Let's move on to education. How do you educate yourself and keep yourself up to date with everything that's going on in this business? You know, I still do help every once in a while. Like when an agent comes to me with an issue and a problem, I love it because that's the part I love. Even though we have someone that they're supposed to go to, they still come to me with different, like, hey, this is a weird one. She doesn't know the answer for it. Can you help me with this? And I love doing that. I actually, the the part that I love about being a mathematics major is I love problem solving. So I do like that portion of it. I just wanted to make sure that I still stayed a little bit in the picture as far as not getting too removed where I didn't know problems that were going on. And so everything I've learned has been hands-on. I don't really spend a lot of time going to classes or anything like that. When you're selling 800 houses a year, you just learn things, <laughs> you know? It's just what it is, and it's all been what I've learned based on just being there, doing it, hearing issues, hearing problems, and figuring out what works and what doesn't. So you're driven to get a task done, and you're just going to figure out how to get it done no matter what it takes. Correct. Was your goal to close 800 transactions last year? Our goal was actually 1,000, and we we really were doing so phenomenal the first half of the year. I think in the month of May, we closed like 93 homes in just that one month, which was phenomenal. We really wanted to close about 1,900 to 1,000, so we actually were short on what we wanted to do. But there's always next year. <laughs> this year. Do you have a goal this year in 2012? What is your goal? How many transactions do you want to close this year? We want to close 1,000 this year. Do you run any type of affiliated business, a separate business? I do have a joint venture with our title company, with, but we only use an attorney who we run a joint venture with. So besides that, that's all I'm doing. In the joint venture title company, do you have to participate? Is that taking a lot of your time or do you have somebody else running that business? We have somebody else doing that business. How long have you had your joint venture in the title business? Only about three months. Oh, it's pretty new. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we really don't know if it's going to work out yet or not. We've made about $3,000 each month since we've started it. Why do you think you've been so successful? The number one thing is the goals that I've written for myself. And I write down, this is how I write a goal. I wrote, I want to do X by doing Y by this date. So 
if I said, I want to lose 10 pounds by cutting out all white flour, all sugar, and all grains, and working out six days a week, and I want to do this by February 15th. That's how I write my goals out. And then I have people that hold me accountable that say, hey, each week, did you have any white flour? Did you have any grains this week? Did you work out six days this week? And I have people in my life that can really look at me and go, let's get back on track. What's going on? If you want to sell a 1,000 homes this year, then have you sold at least 85 this month? If not, what are we going to do to get there? What do we have to what do we have to do to make that happen? My biggest problem that I'm doing right now is that I'm trying to really kind of get into the luxury home and we're doing a little bit with property management and a little bit with commercial. And so it's just getting into something new that I've never done before. Selling residential properties is like a cakewalk for me. It's like hit the easy button. It's so easy. But getting into something new I'm starting to do all of the things that I did when I was brand new. And one of the things that I did when I was brand new was I went to the top people and I said, can I take you out to lunch? And I didn't stop bugging them until we did. And so now I'm starting to do that with the luxury and with the commercial where I'm saying, hey, I want to pick your brain. Let me find out what everything that I can learn and build relationships from those people. Finding mentors. Yes, it's huge. Do you have a coach? I don't have a coach. I've never really had a coach, to be honest. I've just really worked with different people at different times and kind of latched onto them for a little bit and learned as much as I could grow from them at the time. You mentioned people are keeping you accountable. Who are those people? My husband is one of them. A good friend is another, and then our CEO of our company is another. My husband is my goal Nazi, he says. Like, he literally says, pull out your goals, let's see where you're at. So he's very driven, and he's very good at helping me reach what I need to reach. Chantel, what drives you? I think the number one thing that drives me is that I want to be the very, very best at everything that I do. I've always been one of those people, I'm either in fifth gear or park, and if I'm going to do it, I want to do it to be the best, and I want to be number one, and I feel like, you know, I am the number one agent in our area, I've achieved that goal, and now I'm looking for something else where I can say, hey, this is the goal, I've set this for myself, now I can achieve that, and that's That's rewarding to me. It's rewarding to be able to set yourself up and say, this is what I want to do, and then take the steps to achieve it. How do you keep control of your time? I think that I say no a lot. You know, a lot. I have people all the time that say, hey, I'd like to meet with you for coffee, or oh, can you do this, or hey, let's meet for this, and I just have learned to just say no. And I go back to my goals, and I go, is this something that's going to help this goal or help me move forward with this goal or is it not? And so if it's not going to help me achieve the goals that I've got listed in every one of those areas, then I just say no to it. You mentioned core values. What are your core values? One of our core values is that we want win-win relationships and win-win situations. 
Um, another one is to treat everyone with the highest levels of respect. Um, another one is to just be excited and thankful for my client's business. Like with our REOs, that's one of the reasons I think we get so many REOs. When we have an REO asset manager call us and say, hey, would you like this property? We're just like, oh my gosh, thank you so much. We would love to. And we write them emails and thank you cards and saying thank you. Another one of our core values is to find a way to either say my pleasure, I would love to, or absolutely. Like I tell all of my admin, I'm like, all I want to hear is that would be my pleasure, I would love to, or absolutely. I don't want to hear any excuses of why we can't do it. Another one of our core values is have a persistent attitude and positively never give up. That's so huge for us. We really do persist in everything. Follow up until a client buys or dies. We talked about that. Integrity, always ask myself, am I doing the right thing? Let your yes be yes and your no be no. This is huge for me. It's like if you say you're going to do something, do it. If you really can't do it, say you can't do it. But don't tell me you can and then not follow through. Another one is address issues head on. We don't harbor bitterness with things. If you have an issue, you need to let people know and not skirt around it. And the last one is excellence in everything. Ask yourself what would the Ritz-Carlton do. And we want to be the Ritz-Carlton of real estate no matter the size of the transaction. So even though we are not doing high-end transactions, we don't care. We still want to have the Ritz-Carlton service. How do you make sure that everybody knows these core values? Are they posted around the office? Where are they? Yes, they are posted around the office. They also are at different functions. We have, like, at our team meeting, we will do something where we'll do a game. Like, they'll have to, each team will have to say as many core values as they possibly can, and the first team that can do it will win, like, a gift card. You know, like something along those lines, but we do have them posted up and we also go over them in kind of games and, and that sort of thing in different contests. Chantel, if you were going to advise a brand new agent just getting in the business, what would you tell them to do first? I would tell them to write down their goals and to really figure out what it is that they want to do and figure out where their niche is. If it's going to be in short sales or if they want to try to get into the bank owns or if they want to try to do luxury or if they want to do property management, figure out what their niche is and then write down goals and figure out what they need to do to achieve them and then get somebody that they can really hold them accountable to making those steps happen. And the next one would be to latch on to a mentor. Getting somebody to coach you or mentor you is huge. Finding people if you've got to either pay for it or if you can find somebody who can, you know, you can do it without paying for it and they'll just meet with you on a regular basis to help you achieve your goals. Do you think the top agent interviews like the one we're doing now are valuable? I really do. I think that when I first started, I listened to a lot of them when I first got into the business. And every time I listened to one, I learned something from it. And so even if you're not my size of business, you should be able to get a lot out of what I'm saying and apply it to your own. And you sit there and write down notes and figure out what can I apply. And one of the biggest things that I do is I implement things and I 
put it down on a piece of paper and then achieve them because a lot of people listen to stuff, but then they never actually implement the things that they need to do. What's the key to making sure that you implement them? The key is accountability and getting somebody on board to say, hey, what is the consequence if I don't do it? Like, here's a perfect example. One of the girls on my team put in there that she wanted to start taking these vitamins every single day. And so what she did was she said, I'm going to pay my son a dollar for every time he reminds me or I'm going to save that dollar every day if I beat him to it. So every day he would come up and say, Mom, did you take your vitamins? And she said no. She had to pay him a dollar. If she already took it, she saved that dollar. So it was fun for the son. It was fun for her. And it was something that she implemented to actually achieve that goal. Well, Chantel, you give excellent advice. You've quickly built a strong and productive team with your system building, delegation, and leadership skills. You've set ambitious goals and backed them up with accountability partners. You spot emerging trends and find mentors to guide you into those new markets. You're passionate about your business and it shows. Thank you again for being our top agent of the month. If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five-star review and write a quick comment. I read them all, and it motivates me to keep going and share the top agent success stories with you. Thanks. If you're looking for more ways to generate leads, check out our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television, and their giant database library of video trainings where top agents reveal, demonstrate, and discuss their best lead generation methods. Visit RealGTV, R-E-A-L-G dot TV. If you're low on funds or just want to get the maximum leverage, check out my masterclass webinar titled Top 5 Free Lead Sources for Real Estate Agents. Learn more at FreeLeadTime.com. That's FreeLeadTime.com. Oh, and if you have a real estate friend who needs some inspiration, tell them about the Success Calls podcast. And don't you forget to subscribe right now to hear all the great top agent ideas. Keep moving forward. You've been listening to the Mastermind Agent Interview of the Month Club, where top agents, rising agents, team members, and guests from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the club interviews at www.mastermindagent.com.